0: Please stand, if you are able, for a reading from God's holy word. Today's scripture reading is from Luke, chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. Please read with me the verses in bold. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had Amen. been told them. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God.
1: Good morning again. and uh, It is the last Sunday of Advent. For the last four weeks we've been uh, looking through the, the origin story of Jesus in the, fir- in the opening chapters of the Gospel of Luke, and particularly looking at uh, some of the other characters who play small roles in the coming of Christ. And over those uh, weeks, we have looked into and we realize today that there's actually three different angelic visits, in the opening chapters of Luke, announcing the coming of Christ. We, we looked at the first. It was an angel, Gabriel, appearing to Zechariah, uh, a priest, and Elizabeth, his long-praying uh, and faithful but barren wife. They are the would-be parents of John the Baptist. And then there was a second angelic appearance uh, to a virgin named Mary who would become the mother of the Messiah. And then uh, this morning we read that there's a third angelic appearance in the opening of the Gospel of Luke. And this time, uh, angel appears not to uh, a priest and a lifelong faithful woman and not to um, not to a, a pious virgin, but to, as the Scripture says, a bunch of shepherds out in a field keeping watch over their flock by night. And I think that the disparity between the accounts is intentional. I think we're supposed to say to ourselves, wait, these other two events were very specific to very specific individuals. Um, This visit is not like the others, and we're supposed to ask ourselves why. And so this morning, we're going to look at what seems like an indiscriminate visit to an unknown, unnumbered, unnamed amount of shepherds in an indescript field, and wonder. And I think there's a lot for us to learn this morning. In fact, I want to look at who the shepherds were, what the angels told them, and why the angels sing. Uh, A sermon in three parts. So, to begin, who the shepherds were. A few weeks back, uh, as I was coming and going from our neighborhood there were several pest control trucks out in front of one of my neighbor's houses like for three days in a row. And I thought, this is peculiar. Normally, the pest control person rolls up and they get out and they you know, spray the perimeter and maybe knock down a few cobwebs and then they're on their way. Ten minutes, right, max, and then they, they send a bill. But this was three trucks and a trailer and a lot of activity. Uh, Actually, a lot of dirty-looking guys hanging around in the front yard. I thought, what's going on? And so I later found out, and this is the description in my neighbor's own words, that they had a, quote, rat infestation and that these guys had been crawling underneath the house emptying traps and cleaning out nests and they had been crawling up in the attic in fact they removed all removed and replaced all of the insulation in their attic that had become contaminated with rodent excrement so many plugging their ears <laughs> uh It reminded me of that old show on the Discovery Channel, Dirty Jobs, (laughs) right? Uh, It's a dirty job, but somebody has to do it. And what made me think about it was we're reading about shepherds this week, and I was trying to think of some sort of equivalent to the vocational place that these folks held in society when Jesus arrived. I'm trying to... uh, Think of some sort of job, right, that somebody does that we're all really grateful for. Somebody who you might even have a lot of respect for, but somebody whom you wouldn't necessarily invite to stay for dinner when they finished, right? Uh, Somebody who you might not necessarily want the pastor to talk about from the pulpit on Sunday morning. I think shepherds get romanticized a little bit in the scriptures. There were a bunch of famous shepherds. Abraham was a shepherd. Moses was a shepherd. David was a shepherd. But it should probably be noted that these were periods in each of these guys' lives when they were wandering in the wilderness and finding themselves uninvited to family gatherings. God describes himself as a shepherd in the scriptures. And it's a beautiful picture. One of the most famous Psalms is is Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Jesus talks about himself as the good shepherd giving us care and guidance. But we need to remember, I think, that he describes himself as a shepherd because it has as much to do with the ineptitude and filthiness of the people, the sheep, that he's gathering and leading, that we need a shepherd Um, it's a dirty job. And shepherds, circa year 0 AD, did not enjoy a very good reputation. They lived out in the fields. They were tending and cleaning up after sheep. They were killing and touching the dead bodies of predators that came to try to eat the sheep. And they were therefore unable to attend uh, Jewish rituals They were ceremonially unclean and unable to attend the temple, which is a little bit ironic considering how important sacrificing sheep is in temple worship. Um, Shepherds had a dirty job, but somebody had to do it. And it's to this group that an angel appears and says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Who did Christ come for? The angel says, it's good news of great joy for all the people. For a childless priest and his wife who have dedicated their life to serving the Lord in the temple and in Israel, yes. To an idealistic young couple believers who are engaged and unexpectedly pregnant with the Son of God? Yes. For working class church skipping sinners out in the fields? Yes. For shepherds like these. Who the angels came to see that night uh, reminds us that Christ was born and helps remind us who the gospel is for. It cuts across social status, it ignores wealth, uh, who it was that the angels, that God sent the angels to announce this to, this good news demonstrates that this is not exclusively or especially for the pious and the religious. In fact, a lot of, quote, good people miss the announcement, both that night and even today, because they don't realize or won't admit that they're desperate sinners in need of grace. We all are. And that puts this in perspective. I think it puts Christmas in perspective that the angel came to shepherds. Maybe you've had a rotten year. Maybe you feel like you're beat up and you're filthy and you're out in the field and you're uninvited to dinner this year. Maybe it's a year when you lost your job, a year when there's been a lot of sickness in your family, you've experienced an unusual amount of stress, you're being bullied at school or pressured at work. Maybe there's, uh, maybe you're feeling shunned or persecuted, someone you love died this year it's in these kind of circumstances uh, that uh, and they're actually very common right to live a year as a human is sometimes to experience these things or a season of these kinds of things Um, and so to uh, i think it's necessary that in these kinds of circumstances uh to get a gospel perspective That whatever the bad news is for you today or this year, the best news that we celebrate this week, which is that God has come into this world, uh, hasn't changed. Whatever the news is that is dark, the light of the world has still come. And he does have a plan to restore, and he does have a plan to redeem and make new. And it's being worked out through Jesus And nothing can defeat him. And he did all of this. He came for this. Not just unto someone else who's more deserving. But it was unto you. On the other hand, maybe you had a banner year. You got promoted eight times. (laughs) You've profited financially beyond your wildest dreams. Your book got published this year received recognition around the world. You've just had your first child, you've had your first grandchild, and it is clear and agreed upon by all that this child is cuter and more intelligent than any child (laughs) that has ever been born. (laughs) Christmas puts that into perspective as well. How tragic it would be to begin to believe that we are solely responsible for our good fortune. Uh, for what shall it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lose what Christ came to bring at Christmas? The very fact that Christ came to give us the perspective that we need that whatever our circumstances happen to be at the moment, we too are sinners in need of a savior. And Jesus is God's gift to, it says, all the people, anyone who would receive him by faith. That's who the shepherds were. Part two, what the angels told them. In an earlier season in our married life, my wife Olivia and I, had a, we had a brief season where we had a roommate. We were married, but we were living with uh, Sarah, uh, Olivia's best friend, Sarah. And it was during a season in our lives when a lot of our friends were starting their families, and so they were. It was like great Sacramento. There was babies everywhere, and so we would get together, and there would be babies, uh, lots of places, uh, strollers, and whatnot. And Sarah, who, just full disclosure, Sarah is one of the most intellectually brilliant people I know, musically gifted, generous, and genuine. Um. She was colossally awkward with babies,
0: <laughs>
1: she, which is ironic because she has five kids now, but <laughs> she didn't understand what to do with a baby. She didn't know how to hold a baby. She didn't know what to say to a baby or to someone with a baby. And she once confessed to me, I, it wasn't a confession. She, I think she thought she was bragging. She, she told me, that when she saw a woman with a baby, she would try to find something in the room to compare the baby to that might be endearing. (laughs) And so I was was at a party, at a Christmas party. She literally walked up to this woman and said, look at that baby, just lying there in your arms like a little log. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure... I'm not sure that this was necessarily something that the woman wanted to hear (laughs) or know, right? But the gospel of Luke tells us exactly what we need to know about this baby born at Christmas. Luke, as we have seen earlier, is a careful historian. And so he's given us some facts. He places this moment in history when Caesar Augustus was doing this and that. When and where this event occurred is clear if we look at the scripture, but uh, we don't get quite as many details as maybe we would want. In fact, Luke doesn't include some of the standard details in a baby announcement, right? Usually you get a card or you uh, you get a text from a friend and it says, baby boy Jesus, born 1.32 a.m. December 25th, six pounds, 10 ounces. Brown hair, brown eyes. Mother and baby are both doing well and resting in a barn behind the inn on 3rd Street. (laughs) The the angel doesn't share his name. In fact, the, the angel doesn't share that he's a he. There are no statistics. There's no descriptions. But in verse 11, the angel uses four titles to identify the baby that is born. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior, who is Christ the Lord. This is the son of David. He says, the baby is born in the city of David. This is the sixth time already in two chapters in the Gospel of Luke that King David has been mentioned. The child being announced to the shepherds is, is supposed to be understood as David's royal son. The heir of the kingdom of God, which God has promised, would last forever. The angel says, that he's going to be a savior. In the Bible, savior meant uh, deliverer. And the, uh, the deliverers in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Judges, were people who rescued people from death and destruction and oppression. And uh, this implies that we need a savior, which we do. Uh, there, even in Jesus's time as there is today, would be a lot of misunderstanding about what kind of salvation he came to bring. People want him to do a lot of things. In his lifetime, people wanted him to do a lot of things, but the Bible makes clear that Jesus came to save us from the consequences of sin, individually and corporately. He delivered us by taking those consequences on himself as he died for us on the cross, and then he rose again to life and offers that life to us to live forever with God. I I don't expect that when the angel said a savior uh, to the shepherds that they could, you know, pack all of that meaning into uh, their understanding of what the angel was saying, but I think that they understood that the angel was telling them that this child Jesus was the one that they should look to for salvation. The angel calls him Christ. It says, today in David's city is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And now somebody says, oh, he did tell us his name, right? Christ, that's Jesus' last name. Jesus Christ. (laughs) It's actually a title. I think his name would have been like Bar-Joseph, right, Joseph's son. But Christ or Christos in Greek uh, was a title. It, It means Messiah, which is the promised one, the anointed one, the foretold one. In the Old Testament, the one that God had vowed to send. And the Jews had been waiting for centuries, but now the angel says, the promised one has come. And he says, for you, unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And that's the fourth title, the Lord. Luke's already used that word over a dozen times In two chapters, the Lord, and every time he uses that word, he's using it to refer to God. So here's something interesting this is the first time in all of Scripture that those two words, Christ and the Lord, have been put together and refer to the same person. This is unprecedented. In fact, this is a new wrinkle that many or you could argue none expected that the one who would come to save the Messiah that God had promised was not just sent from God, but was none other than God himself come in the flesh. Christ, the Lord, God with us. And then I love this part. So the, pre- the, the two previous angelic appearances, uh, when they Gabriel appears to Zechariah when he appears to Mary. The angel always promises a sign. Uh, Zechariah couldn't speak until John was born. Mary goes to visit and finds out that Elizabeth is pregnant. And these things confirm what the angel has uh, told to them. And the angel offers the the shepherds a sign as well. Uh, He says, if you go to Bethlehem tonight, who knows how many babies you're going to find there. But... Uh, I want you to go to Bethlehem and find this baby. And the, the, you know, the sort of rhetorical question was, well, how will we know which one is actually the Son of God, uh, God in Um Will he have some sort of otherworldly glow about him? Right? Is he going to be, he's going to be clothed in splendor and, and 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 shining in the night? And then the angel says, nope. Find the baby in a feeding trough. There'll only be one, and that's the one. And it's not only a pretty good way to find a a baby in a town full of babies, but it's a pretty good illustration of exactly what God came to do. Taking on flesh wasn't a magic trick just to be cool. Taking on flesh isn't a, a detail that's unimportant to who Christ was. Taking on flesh was humiliation. God had made himself nothing. In fact, now a helpless baby in a manger, there is no longer anyone who is beneath him. He didn't just become human, but he came and experienced the depths of what it means to be human. He had banner years, and he had terrible experiences. He came uh, to know what it's like to be you and then to die in your place. And that's the official term for it. If you ask theologians about it, they call it Christ's humiliation. It was a dirty job. But no one else could do it. Part three, why the angels sing. The passage says that suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God. Why does it say that they're singing? Uh, Because they say there's going to be peace on earth. Glory to God in the highest, the angels sing, and on earth peace amongst those with whom he is pleased. This child has come to bring peace on earth. Now, I suppose there's a certain kind of rest, a certain kind of sleep that you can get in a house that's infested with rats. It's a kind of getting into bed that depends on knowing that all the traps are set. There isn't any food left on the counters. That as far as you know, there's no existing holes in the baseboard or the ceiling tiles where a critter could get in while you're sleeping. I would suppose that it's a fragile sort of sleep, easily disrupted. It shouldn't be lost on us that the nativity story begins, the Gospel of Luke, with a decree from Caesar Augustus about a census. That helps us place it in time. That's Luke's intention. And what that means is that Jesus was born, his birth occurred During a period in history that historians call the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, the world, according to historians, was at peace in the Roman Empire. It was a a period of peace throughout the civilized world provided by Rome, but it's probably more accurate to say that it was a period in world history that lacked war because Rome maintained a warless world at dreadful cost. Lesser nations were subjected and plundered. Peoples were enslaved when it promoted Roman interest. And there was peace and prosperity for some, and that was paid for through the poverty and fear and enslavement of others. And so historians talk about Pax Romana, but it was a fragile, synthetic sort of, Peace. Maybe that describes Christmas dinner as your family gets together. <laughs> There's a famous Stoic philosopher, uh, get his name right, Epicticus, Epictetus, writing at the same time as the Gospel of Luke was written, and he says this, While the emperor may give peace from war on land and sea, He's unable to give peace from passion, grief, and envy. He cannot give peace of heart, for which man yearns more for than outward peace. The scripture would say the same thing this way. The emperor cannot offer you peace with God. After the first angel speaks, it says, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest And on earth, peace amongst those with whom he is pleased. Peace. and the Hebrew Old Testament understanding of peace, the word is shalom, which means total peace for the whole person. And then ultimately, peace for all of creation. Regarding having peace in your whole person, until we have peace with God, we cannot have true peace at all. It's like going to sleep in a house and hoping there aren't any holes in the walls. Our sins cry out against us. We're constantly trying and hoping to outrun the consequences of the things that we know we've done or the relationships that we know we've broken. We're, uh, we're trying to make sure that our secret actions aren't uncovered or our decisions don't come home to roost. Uh, it's a, a sort of existence of hoping to not be discovered and being afraid to die because we fear whether we think in a biblical worldview or not that there's some judgment against us that we deserve but jesus came and says to bring peace with god by paying the penalty for our sins the scripture says that in christ god was making peace by the blood of his cross Would you like to live with that kind of peace? Would you like to have that kind of peace in your heart? Here's a promise. It won't won't come by having the perfect Christmas this year. It comes by putting your faith in a perfect Savior. And it's only after uh, you understand that Christ has made peace for you Between you and God, the the debt of your sin has been paid, that you uh, have a, a new freedom in the life that God has given you. It's only after we have peace with God that we can begin to truly feel at peace with ourselves that we can start to pursue peace with one another. We no longer have to push for our own way or demand that things work out the way that we have planned or on our schedule or on our terms or make sure that our secrets are covered. We can wait on God and trust that he'll work things out in our lives the way that he's already worked things out in our hearts. We don't have to force peace, which is an oxymoron. We, don't, uh, we no longer have to live in a fragile lack of conflict in our lives. A momentary season without conflict held together by the threat of violence, as it was in Pax Romana. The Hebrew scriptures, when they talk about shalom, are talking about a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires a joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in which he delights philosopher Cornelius Plantinga's definition of Hebrew shalom. Who can have that kind of peace? Well, we're expecting Christ to return and make all things right, to bring shalom. And in the meantime, we believe in a savior who has come to make peace between us and God. And the passage this morning says that there will be peace among those with whom he is pleased. Who can have that Peace those with whom he is pleased, those who by God's good pleasure hear the good news and respond in faith like shepherds who ran off to find a baby in a manger. Those who respond in faith like shepherds will know Christ and experience the peace that he came to bring.